Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drevon Sayos, to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, Pittsburgh Pirates, and more as we welcome you to homecoming weekend here on the campus of Bethany College. Starting today's show with a little bit of Pittsburgh Steelers talk as we are well beyond the... How do I want to describe this? The infuriating loss to the Cleveland Browns, the disappointing loss to the Cleveland Browns, 
whatever adjective you want to use to describe that game, it's over, it's done with. And now the Steelers have yet another test ahead of them Sunday with the Jets. And not only is it a test because of how this season has gone so far for the Steelers, but it's also going to be a different test as a result of the Jets more than likely making a quarterback switch as Zach Wilson appears to be ready to go and will be playing Sunday for the New York Jets. Now, Zach Wilson has missed the first three weeks of the season with an injury that he suffered in the preseason and is making his season debut against the Steelers. That was confirmed three hours ago by Tom Pelissero of NFL Network that he was fully practicing today off the injury report. So Joe Flacco made three solid appearances for the Jets in relief of Zach Wilson, and now New York is turning to their true number one quarterback. And that can pose some problems for the Steelers, not only because of, you know, not having necessarily any tape for Zach Wilson to go off of this season, but also the fact that Zach Wilson is a dual threat quarterback. Zach Wilson has the capability of running with his legs. And that's not to say Joe Burrow or Joe Flacco, good Lord, Joe Flacco can't make a play with his legs. We'll touch on Joe Burrow and the Bengals in the next segment when we talk about the latest around the NFL. But Joe Flacco can make a play with his legs when the situation arises. However, he's not necessarily the one that is going to look to make a play with his legs in the way that Zach Wilson does for the Jets. So that's one area in which the Steelers are really going to have to prepare for New York on Sunday is that they have Zach Wilson, who is this dual threat quarterback. That's the way the league is shifting. It's a dual threat QB league now. You've got to be able to make plays with your arm and your legs. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Steelers respond to that because the Steelers' run defense has been, for lack of better words, terrible the first three weeks of the season. And in a way, it's embarrassing to see how poor the Steelers' run defense has been because it was an area that was pitiful last year, and it was something that should have been fixed already, but it was not. It's something that the Steelers should have addressed, and they didn't. And then you have a running back for the Jets like Michael Carter, who is going to be an elite rusher, against a team like the Steelers. I know necessarily the stats aren't in Carter's favor to this point in the season, but he's still going to find a way to be successful against the Steelers, seeing as he's averaging 
almost four and a half yards per carry through the first three weeks. And so that's going to be an area where the Steelers really need to adjust. And then, of course, you not only have Michael Carter, but you have him with the tandem of Brees Hall, who is showing to be one of the best rookie running backs in last year's draft class. And so there's three elements to the run game for the Jets right there that the Steelers are really going to have to pay attention to. And it's something that with the Steelers being poor on the run defense, that is going to be a difference maker in that game, whether or not the Steelers can contain the Jets' run game, whether it's Zach Wilson making plays with his feet, whether it's Brees Hall, or whether it's Michael Carter. I don't know necessarily how many carries, what the percentage of the carries are going to be between Carter and Hall, whether it's a 50-50 split, if Michael Carter's going to get the vast majority of the carries and Brees Hall's going to be thrown in on passing downs to be a check down option out of the backfield for Zach Wilson. Nobody knows necessarily, but the Steelers have to be prepared for all of it. And they have to go in there knowing that any of those three can make plays with their legs. And then of course you look at the passing game and you look at what Garrett Wilson has done this season for the New York jets It's just truly remarkable how talented he is and the fact that the Jets have an elite receiver. I mean, Garrett Wilson, he has 18 receptions for 214 yards and a pair of touchdowns. And then you get a number two receiver right behind him in Corey Davis, who is sitting right under 200 receiving yards through three games with 10 receptions and a touchdown. The New York Jets may not necessarily be the strongest team on paper, but they have talent, and they are very much capable of beating the Steelers. I never thought the Steelers would be in a position to where I would go on the air publicly and say that the Jets are capable of beating the Steelers. But with as poor as the run defense has been for Pittsburgh so far this season, with as horrendous as the offense has been, it really raises a lot of questions as to whether or not the Steelers can come away with winning this game. And I'm not saying that to be facetious. I'm not saying that to try and create talking points. I'm saying that as 100% the truth, because the Jets could very well walk into this game and win it, despite being a major underdog, just given how much talent the Steelers have on both sides of the ball. But it's football. Anything can happen. If Garrett Wilson gets hot, then he could very well be a deciding factor for the Steelers losing the game. And as much as I don't want the Steelers to lose that game, I want to be able to come back on here Friday and talk about how well the team did against the Jets. I'm not convinced that that's necessarily how the game is going to go because of what we've seen from the Steelers through the first three weeks of the season. I am not at all convinced that this team can even go in and beat the Jets. If they do, great. If not, then 
next Friday's show is going to be even more interesting. And the Steelers' secondary is even going to be in a tougher spot as a result of Akella Witherspoon more than likely not going to play Sunday afternoon. The past two days, he has not participated in practice with a hamstring injury. Of course, we don't necessarily have the injury report yet for today's practice, but it's very possible that the Steelers could be without Akella Witherspoon. And that right there is going to make things even more interesting for Garrett Wilson and Corey Davis to be able to break free from the Steelers' secondary. Now, there is one change to the Steelers' defense that they are making as Montrevious Adams will be getting the start at defensive tackle over Tyson Alualu. And Mike Tomlin was asked about that in his midweek press conference, and he simply just shook it off as Adams playing better than Tyson Alualu. So that was why they decided to make the change. And, of course, when you're looking at the big picture in terms of the Steelers' defense as a whole, you would like to hope something is going to change. And hopefully Montrevious Adams can make something happen with that in place of Alualu. Because, as I said, the Steelers' run defense has been very bad to say the least so far this season now flipping over to the offensive side of the ball there's a lot of tension within the Steelers offense right now in part because of how things are going for the Steelers in terms of a lack of production a lack of touchdowns I mean even before the Browns game George Pickens came right out and said that he felt like he was open on 99% of the plays that the Steelers' offense ran. Now, there certainly is some exaggeration in that from George Pickens. Of course, he's not going to be open on 99% of the plays. That's just simply exaggeration from George Pickens. But his point still stands in that he's open a lot more than the stats are showing, and Pickens deserves to have the ball thrown his way, and he's not getting the targets, he's not getting the receptions, and therefore not getting the yardage that he deserves. And we finally saw the Steelers start to take shots down the field against the Browns. Of course, everybody's well aware of the highlight reel grab that Pickens made that is already in the running for catch of the season. But you see now when the Steelers start to take shots down the field that receivers like Pickens, Deontay Johnson, even with his crucial drop against Cleveland and Chase Claypool are able to make plays. And so there's, again, a lot of animosity throughout the Steelers' offense. And, of course, when the Steelers' offense is going three and out more often than not, it's certainly understandable as to why the team is getting more and more frustrated. And, you know, even today, Najee Harris was being asked about 
how the offense can start to turn things around. And Najee Harris, in a way, got a little bit defensive and saying that, you know, the questions about the lack of production were trying to break the offense apart and trying to figure out what's not working. In a way, I understand that Najee Harris isn't going to come right out and throw Matt Canada under the bus. As much as fans would love to see somebody on the Steelers' offense throw Matt Canada right under the bus, it's not going to happen. However, Najee Harris getting defensive and then accusing reporters of trying to break the offense apart because they're trying to do their job and get answers is just ridiculous. Like, I'm sorry, Najee, just because reporters are trying to do their job and get information doesn't mean that you have to get defensive because the offense that you're a part of isn't doing their job. I mean, if the Steelers offense was going out there and putting up 30 points a game, Mitch to throw three touchdown passes and 250 yards week in and week out, there wouldn't be questions about Matt Canada's play calling. There wouldn't be questions about the lack of production for the offense. And so in a way, the Steelers offense has put themselves in this situation. They are the ones responsible for being in this predicament. And, you know, Najee Harris is very quick to highlight the fact that people are trying to break up the Steelers' offense. Let's be real here. Najee Harris, your 3.2 yards per carry isn't helping anything. You've got to find a way to hit the holes that your offensive line is providing you. It's still not perfect as far as the offensive line. But the offensive line this season is much better than it was last season. And the holes are there. Najee Harris is just simply not finding them at times. And I don't know if it's just simply a lack of trust because of dealing with last season or if there's this idea that he thinks he can just make his own plays and try and turn something, make something happen when there was truly nothing to begin with. And I think it's one of those things where Really, the frustration is starting to settle in for everybody. The players, the fans, the coaches, they all know the offense is struggling terribly. And for Najee Harris to say what he did today, in my opinion, just speaks to the fact that they're all frustrated. And, you know, we are all unhappy with how the Steelers offense is panning out. Nobody wants to see the Steelers offense in this scenario, but rather than being the one to point out that reporters are dividing the offense, why not just focus on fixing the issue and tell people that you're focusing on fixing the issue and that you don't care about how the first three weeks went and that you're focused on Sunday, and then you focus on the next week. 
nobody cares about the fact that you're trying to shift the blame on people for dividing the offense. The offense has divided itself because of its lack of execution. And they have to find a way to do better. Of course, Mitch Trubisky has stood by Matt Canada this entire time, recognizing that he's the leader of the offense. The struggles that the team is having aren't necessarily anything to do with the play calling or the lack of play calling, but simply down to the execution. However, in talking to the receivers, they are very much frustrated with the play calling because they aren't getting targets. And even when Trubisky is deciding to throw the ball, it's a check down to Najee Harris out of the backfield, or it's a dump off to Pat Fryermuth over the middle. And while Fryermuth certainly deserves to have carries or receptions, he's not the only target within the offense, and neither is Najee Harris. So it's really just a matter of getting that sorted out and going from there. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we return, the latest around the NFL with Week 3 and a look ahead to Week 4 right here on the Bethany Online Radio.
We're back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest around the NFL. Joined once again by Dylan Bazika. Dylan, welcome back in your early thoughts on week three. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for having me, man. And week three was a lot of surprises in week three, but it was a very good amount of games on Sunday and looking forward to the upcoming season. Absolutely. Of course, I want to start with a rather interesting matchup in week three. Trevor Lawrence and the Jaguars just absolutely manhandling the Chargers. I mean, that was not necessarily a result I think anybody would have predicted. And for Trevor Lawrence to go out there and put up the game he did was truly just something else. Yeah, it was a real surprise to me. Like, I really didn't think the Chargers would or the Jags would win that game at all. I thought after the disappointing loss on Thursday night football, the Chargers would bounce back and beat the Jags. But like you said, Trevor Lawrence looked phenomenal. And that defense, it looked very, very good against the Chargers. Absolutely. And it's just truly remarkable, you know, how well Doug Peterson has changed the Jaguars from a year ago with Urban Meyer. And that entire team just looks completely different. I mean, not that Urban Meyer was a bad coach overall. He's just, he's very much like Nick Saban, where he's made for college football and doesn't necessarily have that success translate to the NFL. And I know you're an Alabama fan, so, I mean, I'll let you say a little bit on that. Yeah, well, Urban Meyer, was, was he was not built for the NFL and all. And plus, with all the allegations that came out against him, like the Graham Gano thing, how he was like hit his hit the kicker or something if he like missed a field goal. And then plus, we all know the incident that happened after they played the Rams last year at his, uh, what is his bar or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm not going to, we all know what that is. I'm not going to speak on that, but. Yeah, he was uh, he was not a great head coach, and like didn't seem like a great person at all, really, just based on all the stuff that happened last season. But Doug Peterson, I love him as a head coach. When Denver had our when we fired Fangio, I really wanted Denver to get Doug Peterson because I was like, he's really experienced, his offenses are always good, and he won a Super Bowl. So I think he's a really good coach, and this is what um, Trevor Lawrence really needed last season. Need a good head coach that will put him in the best situations all the time and he has that experience in the Super Bowl in the postseason so yeah this Jacks team is going to be you're going to be a real surprise this year what they can do in that division absolutely and of course one of the other teams within the division the Indianapolis Colts hosting Kansas City but pulling off the upset and I didn't necessarily get to see all of that game but Just from what I did get to see, it honestly reminded me a lot of the Steelers-Bengals game in week one. I mean, it seemed like nobody wanted to win, and to be quite honest, nobody really deserved to win that game. Mm -mm. No, both offenses did not look really well at all. It was mostly the defenses that were out there most of the game, but the Colts' offense, it really was struggling the entire game until, like, the fourth quarter, and it was very surprising that Kansas City, now they could have went had they were up 17 to 7 at one point and i really thought the chiefs were going to pull away in the third quarter but 
the Chiefs decided not to go for it, like, at the Colts' 34-yard line on fourth and two. And he ended up trying to kick a field goal, and Matt Am- Amendola missed it. And I think that sparked the Colts team to uh, get going in the second half. And I think that was the turning point of that game. Absolutely. Of course, the Colts certainly will take the win nonetheless, even if it wasn't one that they on paper should have won or necessarily deserve to win, even through much of the game. Because like you said, their offense was very lackluster throughout the entire 60 minutes. And how about the Vikings coming back to defeat Detroit at home? I mean, they were down by quite a few points entering the fourth quarter. I mean, it was it was a two-score game, and then the Vikings stormed back, and they scored a touchdown in the final seconds from Kirk Cousins hitting K.J. Osborne. Yeah, I was watching that game uh, Sunday. I was rooting for the Lions, really. I saw they were up 24-14. I was like, okay, okay, we'll, okay, Detroit. But... You know, Detroit will be Detroit, and they uh, they just cannot finish games, really. And that showed in the fourth quarter, not scoring any points in the fourth. Defense going away, really, in the fourth quarter. But Jeff Okuda did look very well against Justin Jefferson, holding him to only three catches on 14 yards on t- seven targets. And as someone that who has Justin Jefferson in fantasy football, that about made me want to cry <laughs> because I was expecting a very big game out of Justin Jefferson. And for him to have that kind of performance certainly was not one that anybody was expecting. But, I mean, the Lions, they even kept Jalen Rieger in check, too. I mean, he only had one catch for two yards. Yeah. And so... It really was Detroit's defense that did a pretty solid job as far as, you know, keeping guys where they should have been. And a credit to Kirk Cousins, even when receivers one and two may not necessarily have been open, getting it to Osborne and Thielen. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, now that I look at it, you know, we were talking the other week about Cincinnati having one of the top wide receiver trios in the league with Boyd, Chase, and Higgins. I mean, Minnesota has to be right up there as well. Yeah, their their trio is really underrated, really, if you look at Thielen, Jefferson, and Osborne. And you can even throw Rager in there as well. Yeah, that, that receiving core for the Vikings, it's very good. People don't give them much credit for. And then, of course, Baltimore going on the road, putting up 37 points on New England. And that was a team Baltimore last week that we really talked about after they lost to Miami really needing to step it up they go out there they put up another 37 point game of course it was I think 38 last week against Miami Mm -hmm. and the defense drastically improving as well and Lamar Jackson just having himself a day once again both in the air and on the ground yeah Lamar Jackson looked like an MVP last week he had 218 passing yards four touchdowns only one pick and then he led the team in rushing on 11 carries and 107 yards and also scoring a rushing touchdown but that offense is looking very well mark andrews during that game new england could not stop him he was wide open every single time and andrews finished the game with eight catches for 89 yards and two touchdowns the defense really stepped up too for baltimore um, they uh, had three. They forced three turnovers, three picks from Mac Jones, and they really 
stormed back after that uh, collapse last week against Miami. Absolutely. And if there's a way to make a response after that Miami game, that was certainly the way to do it against New England. And then, of course, one of the other main talking points was the Sunday night football game between Green Bay and Tampa Bay. And Sunday night football game was Denver and... Oh, Miami. yes, that's right. It was um, it was the late afternoon game on Sunday, the 4.30 game on Fox. That's right. I was just... I saw the teams and was... Yep. It should have been Sunday it, night football. It should have been after the Sunday night game, yeah. But just how low scoring that game was. I mean, I know, of course, the Packers and the Bucks they both have strong defenses, but... If you had told me beforehand only 26 points between the teams combined and the fact that Tom Brady only had one touchdown pass, I would not have seen that coming at all. Oh, no, I expected a way high, more high-scoring game from this game. But like you said, they have two defenses that are probably like top 10. And Rodgers was without two of his top receivers, but Romeo Dobbs looked like he has emerged as one of uh, Rodgers' favorite targets early on in the season and Tom Brady he was without Julio Jones um Mike Evans and Chris Godwin which that's Mm -hmm. a big loss and only losing by two points against a very good Packers team that's very good comparing what Tom Brady had against that Packers last week and of course while you can't necessarily blame Godwin for the injury no but I mean Mike Evans should have been out there. I mean, that was yeah. that was stupid for him yeah, to get that, into that the fight. fight he had was completely unnecessary. Yeah, and so I think, in all honesty, if Tampa Bay even just has Mike Evans, they win think, that game. Yeah, I think they win that game as well. But, and then of course the real Sunday Night Football game. Yes, yes. Your Broncos and the 49ers, and that game was something of its own sort, as it was. A very low-scoring game as well. Just 21 points combined between the teams, and somehow, some way, your Broncos squeaked out of there with an 11-10 win. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. I was very nervous uh, on Sunday night watching this game. Both offenses really struggled during that game, but uh, Denver really struggled on offense. They punted 11 times. Our our, the, our two punters, San Francisco and Denver, they really stole the show on Sunday mm-hmm. night football. Um, Watman for the Broncos had 10 punts for 476 yards, which is just insane. And then the 49ers punter, um, where is he? Um, which now he had seven punts for 362 yards. So the special teams really was played very well, but Denver's offense really needs to get things clicking early on because we did not score any touchdowns at all until the fourth quarter. And it was a Melvin Gordon touchdown. But, like I said, I know some people are, like, writing the Broncos off right now, saying, oh, their offense isn't going to get it. Their head coach doesn't know what they're doing. But we all got to think. We we got a brand-new head coach, brand-new offensive coordinator, brand-new quarterback. And ain't going to click right off the rip. You've got to give these things time. Now, if they're doing this, like, week eight, then, yeah, you can probably – start panicking a little bit, but it's only it's only week four now. So I think Denver's offense will be fine. Denver's defense, on the other hand, whew, 
Oh my goodness, they looked phenomenal against the 49ers last night or last Sunday night, forcing two turnovers against the 49ers, getting one interception to seal the game off, and then the famous. Jimmy G running out of his own end zone <laughs> to get a safety. And during that, he he also threw a pick six to Bradley Chubb, which did not stand, of course, because it's a safety. But I thought that was pretty interesting. And De- um, Denver was the only team since 2008 to win a game after punting 10-plus times. And then this was the second-ever game finishing 11-10. to 10. The other mm-hmm. one was back in, I think, the early 80s, they said. So... Very happy Denver came away with the win here. We have the 0-3 Raiders this Sunday that a lot of people have us losing somehow. I don't I don't know why, because the Raiders are 0-3, and they're not looking so great. Yeah, the Raiders certainly aren't off to a strong start, and now the questions, the questions are coming up for Las Vegas as to whether or not Josh McDaniels finishes out the season as their head coach. And, of course, you know, you mentioned the Sunday night game, Wisnowski and... Corliss Waitman, both very busy in that game for the Broncos and the 49ers. How about Eli Manning's comments on the Manning cast about Denver should have used the $235 million they paid Russ and give it to Corliss Waitman? Yeah, I thought that was very funny. And Russ <laughs> responded to that on Tuesday saying that he is 3-0 and against Chad Powers. If you guys don't know who Chad Powers is, it uh, Eli Manning went back to uh, Penn State for a pro day and had a fake identity saying he was Chad Powers. So Russ had a little fun with that, saying he was undefeated against <laughs> Eli, and he deserves his money. Absolutely, of course. It'll be interesting to see how soon, if at all, Eli Manning even responds because, I mean, Eli Manning has a very crucial response in his back pocket. I mean, all he has to do is pull out his left hand and have two Super Bowl rings on his finger. I mean, Russ only has the one, of course, certainly capable of had the second one. Certainly capable of winning a second one, but as of right now, that would be if I were Eli Manning, that would have been my response. Mm-hmm. And I would have done it right away. To show the picture about <laughs> um Malcolm Butler intercepting Russ at the one yard line. Yeah, something along those lines, but gosh, that game I was I was hurt that game. Like you're down on the one yard line, and you have Marshawn Lynch, best running back in football at that time, and you do not give it to Beast Mode. Yeah, that was that was something else. Now, looking ahead to Week Four, what matchup or matchups stand out to you this week? Uh, I really like the uh, Titans Colts matchup this week. Titans finally getting a win. Last week against the Raiders and the Colts upset in the Chiefs. I think that game will be a nice AFC South game right there. Jags and Eagles, I think, will be very interesting because especially after the Jags big game last week against the Chargers and the Eagles being undefeated, that will be a very good game. Bills and Ravens will be a great game featuring two MVP candidates and two high-powered offenses going at it. It will be a very good game. And then... Chiefs and Bucks on Sunday Night Football will be a very good matchup. Absolutely, that that game is certainly going to be a high quality matchup there with Kansas City and Tampa Bay. Of course, Tampa Bay getting Mike Evans back only suspended for the one game, and Kansas City along with Tampa Bay looking to respond after suffering 
gut-wrenching losses in week three. So that one should be a very enticing matchup. Of course, Brady and Mahomes once again. And, you know, we talked about it last week with Green Bay and Tampa Bay going against each other, possibly being the last matchup between Rodgers and Brady. And this could very well be the last matchup between Mahomes and Brady. Yeah. I mean, we don't necessarily know how much longer Tom Brady's going to play. He had retired before the the season started way back in right around Christmas time. And then about a month later decided, you know what, I'm going to come out of retirement and I'm still not a hundred percent convinced that he decided to do that simply because he wanted to be spiteful against Adam Schefter for breaking the news. Yeah. Because you know, Tom Brady, he wanted to be the one to break his own yeah, news. He's the one who wants to break his own news. He doesn't want anyone else doing it but himself. Mm-hmm. So I, again, I think part of that was just him coming out of coming out of retirement out of spite to then be the one to when he decides to retire he can simply announce it himself but of course the big storyline around the league we talked about this a little bit beforehand the game last night between Miami and Cincinnati of course Cincinnati won the game 27-15 but the storyline in there is the injury to Dolphins quarterback Tua Tagovailoa. He was injured in week three against Buffalo, took a hard hit, had his head smack off of the field. He This was right at the end of the first half. He got back up, was ready to keep playing, and then stumbled to the ground a few seconds later. He got up, tried to shake himself out of it, proceeded to head off the field, got checked out, the Dolphins medical staff claiming that it was a back injury threw Tua back into the game for the second half. The Dolphins went on to win 21-19. And then, of course, the truly gut-wrenching pictures and replays from last night of Tua on the ground, the way his hands were moving, being carted off on a stretcher. I mean, Dylan, like I said, I know you're an Alabama guy. Tua was your quarterback for several years. So... I want to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, first of all, prayers out to the Tungavailoa family. I just hope that family's doing very well with that devastating injury Tua suffered last night. He was one of my favorite QBs to watch at Alabama. He's just he's just a great person, and it sucks seeing this for him, especially his uh, up-and-down NFL career. But I've always liked Tua in the NFL. I've always said he was a franchise guy, and... Yeah, this one, I was in shock last night. Like, I, I could not speak any words when I saw the replays and everything of Tua getting hurt. But he is okay. The reports, have, uh, the reports I've seen, he's been okay. He flew back with the team last night. And mm-hmm. just prayers out to the Tungabailoa family. I hope everything goes all right. But addressing the Dolphins medical staff, whoever cleared Tua to be cleared back that was completely uncalled for Tua had no business especially the injury on Sunday we everyone saw what happened that injury he was stumbling off the field he didn't know where he was at he should not have been cleared to come back in that game and then last night no business he should have been playing at all they should have just rolled him out but the Dolphins are someone needs to take responsibility for this injury because that was completely uncalled for I Someone from the Dolphins medical staff has to get fired, I think. Someone's job, they got to get fired because that was completely uncalled for. You're putting your franchise QB in danger. And, like, he was bad. Like, I really thought, like, he, he was unconscious at one point. 
and mm -hmm. it was just completely uncalled for and someone has to pay for this absolutely i mean you know i understand it's the nfl i understand tua is your franchise quarterback and you are in a much better position to win football games when he is on the field as opposed to when he is not but whether it's mike mcdaniel their head coach or anybody on that medical staff they simply have to be smarter and you know i understand that tua was supposedly cleared to play thursday night my question is if it was truly a back injury what did he need cleared for exactly i mean the, the dolphins medical staff themselves could have monitored his back injury and allowed him to play in that game he could have worn a back brace if it was truly something it was not a with back injury that there oh i know it wasn't i'm just saying you yeah. know if that if that if it truly was a back injury there's ways in which they could have went around it and yeah. you don't need an independent doctor to clear you for a back injury no and like you said somebody within the dolphins medical staff needs to explain something mike mcdaniel needs to explain why he even decided to utilize Tua out there last night. Like I said, I get you want to win. I get Tua as your franchise quarterback, but it makes absolutely zero sense to go out there because not only are you jeopardizing Tua's season, you're jeopardizing his career, and you're jeopardizing his life. Yeah. I mean, I know nobody wants to think about it, but – the way that Tua hit his head last night and, times, the, and the way he did it Sunday as well, having that happen twice in the span of five days, they very easily could have walked out onto that field last night and he was dead. Yeah. I hate to say it, yeah. but it's the truth. Oh, yeah, most definitely. And so it's, it's truly embarrassing as to how the league handled that. And, you know, a lot of times when it comes to players associations across sports leagues, I often think a lot of times they rush into things and they're simply unrealistic with their demands, especially when it comes to negotiating contracts. But I am 100% with the NFLPA in investigating that whole incident because, like you said, there's no way Tua should have went back out there against Buffalo and there's no way he should have been out there at all last night against the Bengals. If they want to say... You know, they sit him the rest of the Bills game. If they sit him that Bengals game and then they turn around for week five and reevaluate things from there. And if at that point he's good to go, then you have him play in New York when they take on the Jets. But going out there, being thrown back into the fire against Buffalo, being thrown into the fire last night against Cincinnati on such a short prep week just totally inexcusable inexcusable i mean like you're jeopardizing your entire season what's one game y'all are undefeated rest to a rest them all this week who have a bunch of rest and then play them against the jets that's what i would have done if i was the coach but mm -hmm. that medical staff do they, they gotta explain for what they did to two because that was uncalled for and the thing is you know especially going back to the buffalo game if the dolphins don't have Tua in the second half they probably don't win that game but you know, right now, they're 3-1 and one because they went back to Tua. He came in, helped them win that game. Even if by some slim chance they win that game without Tua against Buffalo, or if they do, in fact, lose it. At this point in the season, 2-2 two two compared to 3-1 and one isn't much of a difference maker at all. 
there's still plenty of time to go out there and win the division. Yes, I understand if that were the case, you know, Buffalo would have the lead right now in the division. They'd have that head-to-head tiebreaker. But it's a divisional matchup, and you play Buffalo one more time. And if you truly believe that you can take the division from Buffalo, then you would have no problems going out there later in the season and beating them. You know, I get that that game was on your home turf, but if you're as good as you think you are, then you should be able to go into Buffalo and beat them the way they would have beat you at your home field. Most definitely. And, you know, like you said, somebody needs to explain something about this whole to a situation because like we said last night he was taken to the cincinnati university of cincinnati hospital for their trauma center and that was a very scary scene and so for him to not necessarily know when he's going to step on the football field next of course certainly isn't the priority right now but it was certainly a situation that he should not have even been in in the first place. And it's truly embarrassing. I get Mike McDaniel's a first-year head coach, but the Dolphins' medical staff is experienced enough. Everybody knows the severity of concussions. I mean, this this isn't the 1980s. This isn't the 90s, even the early 2000s. I mean, everybody knows the severity of concussions to this point and how getting them in quick succession like that can be very impactful and how each time you get one, it could have the capability of being worse than the previous one. And I mean, let's face it Tua suffered two concussions in five days. Yeah. That, that's uncal- That's insane. I, I mean, I know even there's times where somebody suffers one concussion and it takes them a very long time to get back out back out playing i know this was this was almost 10 years ago now and i know it's getting a little bit off topic going over to hockey but Sidney crosby suffered a concussion he was out for about 10 months yeah. because of the concussion and constantly getting it re-aggravated constantly having headaches still as a result of that concussion and you're going to throw Tua back out there t- for two games in five days? I mean, I know even me personally, my freshman year, I suffered a concussion playing soccer. I was out two weeks. The trainers here at Bethany would not even let me do anything remotely close to slight contact in practice, much less allow me to go back out there for a game. And, you know, I get the fact that the Dolphins medical staff is probably a little bit more advanced than the trainers at a division three school in, to be quite honest, the middle of nowhere, but it's still the principle. I mean, it doesn't matter where you are, what level you're playing. A concussion's a concussion and it can still have a lot of long-term problems for it. Absolutely. And now what could have been a scenario where, you only had to miss Tua for a game or a game and a half. You miss him for a lot more than... Now you're missing him for a huge chunk of your season because the Dolphins decided to be stupid and throw him out there unnecessarily because... It's only week four, too. Like, there's 18 weeks in the season. Like, 
who cares if you don't have Tua for this week? You'll have him for the long run when the season's actually going to matter. Absolutely. And, I mean, you look at the schedule ahead for Miami. Of course, as I mentioned, week five, they're in New York against the Jets. The next week, they host Minnesota. Then they host the Steelers. Then they're in Detroit. Then they're in Chicago. So their next five games, they have the possibility of winning a good bit of those, but they could also very much come out on the losing end of those, especially now that they don't have Tua and have to turn to Teddy Bridgewater. So, I mean, would you rather lose Tua for a game against Cincinnati early in the season and then use those next five weeks with your franchise quarterback to turn your season around and get yourself in a strong position versus going out there risking Tua just to keep your undefeated season alive, which probably wasn't going to stand anyways. No. And then now in what is approaching the heart of the season, you're now not going to have your guy. I mean, that just makes absolutely no, no sense, sense to me. And it's quite ridiculous. Like you said, somebody's going to end up having to get fired. Yes. Somebody's more than likely going to be sued, whether it's the Dolphins medical staff themselves, whether it's that independent doctor, whoever it was that decided to clear Tua, one or both of them are going to get sued. Yes. And it's, it's going to be a very ugly lawsuit Yes, that to be quite honest, I don't see how the Dolphins medical staff or that independent doctor if one or both of them, or when both are, if when one or both of them get sued, there's no way they can come out on top of that lawsuit. I mean, that's... No, Tua's going to win that lawsuit 100%. Absolutely. And even if it's just the NFLPA who files that lawsuit, I would not be surprised if Tua's family doesn't file a lawsuit oh, of their own. Most definitely. I'm expecting them to file a lawsuit against them. Because, like we said, that's just... At that point, it's player endangerment. And, yes. you know, the NFL is a league that continues to preach the idea of player safety. You know, we're seeing so many things get called for roughing the passer now in the NFL that weren't roughing the passer even just five, yeah, years, five ago. years ago. You know, they're getting rid of they're getting rid of chop blocks. They're getting rid of I mean, they're minimizing kick returns they're changing the way in which players can line up on kick returns to limit hard hits they move the kickoff from the 20 to the 25 to try and decrease the number of kick returns that there are you're seeing a lot more punt returners call for fair catches probably more than what you did five ten years ago so you can't preach the idea of player safety in all of those areas and then let Tua go out there last night or even let him get back into the game Sunday against Buffalo. Yeah. It's just, it's absolutely insane that all of that transpired and it's in a way pathetic that it had to happen that way. And it shouldn't take Tua potentially being paralyzed or worse yeah. for people to wake up and realize, you know, that, this is something that's ongoing across the league, and it's not just Tua who's dealing with this. I'm sure there are hundreds, if not thousands, of stories of players across the league who have very similar experiences. Oh, yeah, 100%. <clears throat> because, Especially former players. Absolutely. And, you know, 
one of the one of the examples that automatically comes to mind this was about 10 years ago when the Steelers went into Denver actually and Ryan Clark has sickle cell disease Ryan Clark was cleared to play by the Steelers doctors and Mike Tomlin told him with a straight face you're not playing and Ryan Clark was confused about that he said he was like but I'm cleared and even though he was cleared Tomlin didn't want to take the chance because he knew it was one game as opposed to the entire season or possibly a career or a life. And that's the same approach that Mike McDaniel should have had. Like you said, I get it's his first year as a head coach. You know, there's a lot of growth in when it comes to first year head coaches across the NFL. But I mean, when it comes to something like that, you don't need NFL experience to be able to put a player safety first. No, 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 there's no question. So, like we said, hopefully things get better for the Dolphins. Hopefully Tua recovers as quickly as possible. And now that's another thing, too. You know, depending upon how long he's out for, I mean, what's next? Are the Dolphins going to rush him back from this recovery, too? I wouldn't be surprised, honestly. I mean, we've seen it all at this point. If I would, like you said, I wouldn't be surprised if – you know, if he's given a timeline of, we'll say, three to five weeks, I would be very surprised if he was not back out on the field in three weeks because they're, they're going to rush him back. And especially if that lawsuit, when it happens, it's still going to be ongoing. So nothing mm-hmm. is going to happen with Miami's team doctors between now and then. Nothing is going to happen with that individual or the independent doctor. doctor. Yes, the independent doctor that cleared him. Nothing is going to happen to any of them between now and when Tua comes back out onto the field. So if they're the same idiots that decided to clear him for last night, like we said, what's stopping them from clearing him when he shouldn't be cleared to go back out there again? And if I were a player on the Dolphins, that would be something – I would be addressing with Mike McDaniel or even upper management, you know, where is their concern for player safety? Exactly. Because I feel like the Dolphins medical staff doesn't really care about it because look what they did with Tua. Like, that's a prime example like, of them not caring about a player safety at all. Absolutely. I mean, especially your franchise guy, too. Like, come on now, Miami. <laughs> like, yeah. And that's the thing, you know, like we've already said. We get it's your franchise guy. We get you want him to be out there on the field and that he puts you in the best position to win games. But you have to have some common sense when it comes to protecting him because, I mean, if he would have went out there last night like he did and got hurt and his career is done, then guess what? You're stuck with Teddy Bridgewater this entire season. And then come April of next year, you're panicking trying to trade up into the top five or top six to get either Bryce Young or C.J. Stroud and try and find your franchise guy all over again. And then it becomes the philosophy of one step forward, two steps back, because now you're starting over from scratch in developing a franchise guy. Whereas if you would have just been smart and sat Tua for the game against the Bengals, even if you would have said, okay, we're not going to have you play, even if they wanted him in uniform, have Bridgewater start the game Mm -hmm. and have Tua dressed, have him in uniform, have him be the backup and only – 
throw him in truly if necessary. Just have Tua help Teddy with the offense and tell him what's going on. And, yeah, that's all what I had to have done, just be on the sideline just for support. Yeah. I mean, if you want him to dress, okay, fine. If you want him ready to go, that's fine too. But he should not have entered that game. And like you said, you know, be there to support Bridgewater, help him through the offense, whether it be with play calling, reading the Bengals' defense. I mean, it should not have gone the way it did. And Al Michaels even pointed this out on the broadcast. The Dolphins had three quarterbacks dressed last night because of Tua being on the injury report and not necessarily knowing whether or not he was going to be cleared to go. So if you have three quarterbacks dressed on game day, then there's even more of a reason as to why Tua should not have played because you knew he wasn't 100% leading up to that game. You knew there was a chance he wasn't even going to be able to play. So why would you force him into that situation? I don't know, man. It's just a bad situation. Like it's, I'm still in shock of what happened to Tua last night. It's completely uncalled for Miami's medical staff what they did. Like you're acting, they're acting like Teddy knows what he's doing. Teddy's been all over the league. He knows all the offenses. I mean, he was in Denver last year. He knew our offense. He did pretty well. But come on, Miami, really? Yeah, that that certainly shouldn't have been the case. We're gonna step aside here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. When we return discussing the Pittsburgh Penguins looking at their first three preseason games, some line combinations that are looking great and others that possibly may need changed right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show.
We're back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show, looking now at the Pittsburgh Penguins. Mentioned before the break, really doing a deep look at the Penguins' first three preseason games. Of course, it was a pair of contests against the Columbus Blue Jackets. That was a split squad match for the Penguins. One home, one away, of course. And then hosting Detroit just a few nights ago. Now, I'll start with the split squad games, and particularly the one at home, because that was a game that occurred first for the Penguins. So, in looking at that game, it was a 3-2 overtime victory for the Penguins. Now, in preseason, I'm typically not concerned with the results, which is why I'm not even going to really mention the score other than what I just did, you know, saying that the Penguins won in overtime. But the Penguins looked fairly strong in that game. And you had Jason Zucker getting on the score sheet, Andronovsky getting on the score sheet, one of the Penguins minor league guys getting his name in the scoring as well. And Lazat, one of the Penguins minor league defensemen, John Lazat, that is, also getting involved in the scoring. So the Penguins are showing they have depth that is capable of scoring. Of course, the goaltenders that game were Casey DeSmith and Philip Lindbergh, who each conceded one goal, Lindbergh making 14 saves, DeSmith making 12, a game that was pretty much split right down the middle between the two as far as minutes played. Of course, Lindbergh had a pair of saves on the power play for the Blue Jackets. But Lindbergh continues to be strong for the Penguins in their minor league system. And, you know, he was a guy that I talked about last year as being the one who could be starting to prove himself in the Penguins organization. And he could very well see himself being in Pittsburgh in quite a short amount of time as the Penguins, I don't necessarily want to say they have a strong need for goaltending because they have Tristan Jari, who is solid as ever. And then you've got a guy like Casey DeSmith who can be reliable at times. But as we've seen in the past, Casey DeSmith has also had his faults where he isn't necessarily as consistent as what he could be or should be. So I think if that continues where DeSmith really starts to struggle, you may see the Penguins turn to Lindbergh as someone who would complement Tristan Jari well, especially with the way the game of hockey is changing. You know, yes, there are teams across the league that still have a clear-cut number one starting goaltender, the Penguins in Jari the Tampa Bay Lightning in Andre Vasilevsky. And there are several other teams across the league that have that as well. The Rangers with Igor Shisterkin, just to name a few. But you're starting to also see a lot of teams shift to a goaltending tandem where you not ha- where you don't have a one and a two anymore. It's a 1A and a 1B where 
Both guys are capable of starting when called upon. Both guys are capable of getting the job done. And that's the way the league is shifting, especially as a result of more back-to-back games for teams. You're not throwing the same goaltender out there on consecutive nights. Now, for the Penguins in that home game, they had quite a few talented players out there, regulars within the starting lineup. Teddy Bluger mentioned Jason Zucker. Kasperi Kapanen was out there. Drew O'Connor, a guy who could potentially crack himself into the opening night lineup. Ricard Raquel, as far as defenseman, Mark Friedman, he's gotten a lot of time. Marcus Pedersen, Chad Ruedel, a guy who's seen quite a few minutes. Ty Smith, the one who came over from the Devils in the John Marino deal. Ty Smith looked, for the most part, pretty solid out there for the Penguins. There were times where it looked a little bit skittish, like the confidence was lacking. Didn't necessarily have the greatest accuracy as far as passing. But he still went out there and showed that he can play at this level. Now, the game in Columbus was not necessarily one in which the Penguins were proud of and wanted to look at. Of course, Danton Heinen, Redeem Zahorna, along with Josh Archibald, really the only three Penguins in terms of forwards that will either or have a chance to make the opening night lines. As far as defensemen, the only one who really had a, has a chance to make the opening night lineup, P.O. Joseph. And Dustin Tokarski played that entire game for the Penguins in goal. So he conceded all five goals on 32 shots. So, again, it wasn't necessarily the greatest night for Tokarski. He was responsible for an early goal the Blue Jackets scored did not necessarily handle that one as well as he should have. But again, that's the issue the Penguins are having where the third goaltender isn't necessarily making the saves that they could be or should be. And, you know, we saw this last season with Louis Domingue, especially in the playoffs against the New York Rangers. So that's where maybe if Ron Hextall really wanted to get aggressive of course, not this season because he signed Tukarski. But next year, really look to give a guy like Philip Lindbergh a chance. I'm very high on Philip Lindbergh in the organization. I've watched a lot of his tape in college. I think he's someone who can really have an impact on the Penguins moving forward. Whether or not he's a franchise goalie, like Andre Vasilevsky or Igor Shisterkin, time will only tell. But I think that he's more than capable of handling himself appropriately in the cage. And of course, it didn't help that game for the Penguins. You know, it was mainly AHL or even ECHL players because there were a handful of wheeling nailers playing in that game for the Penguins, including Sam Oud. But the Blue Jackets in that game had their front six out there for 
that game. They had their two top forward lines going against the Penguins, AHL, and ECHL players. So, of course, it wasn't going to be a pretty game for the Penguins. I mean, when you have Johnny Gaudreau, Patrick Laine going out there against guys like, I don't want to say P.O. Joseph because he's somebody who can play in the NHL, but you look at the list of defensemen aside from P.O. Joseph, it's not necessarily a pretty list of names. And it was to be quite expected that that was what was going to happen where the Penguins got roughed up a little bit and really saw themselves in a situation to evaluate. Now, the result that I am the most frustrated with, and again, I get that it's preseason, was the game Tuesday night at home in which the Penguins lost 6-2 to the Detroit Red Wings. And the reason why it's the most frustrating was because of the fact that the Penguins had pretty much a lot of their starters playing in that game, at least for some of it. Crosby was playing in that game. Malkin played. Brock McGinn, Kasperi Kapanen, Jake Gensel, Brian Rust, Jeff Carter. I mean, it was a very strong lineup for the Penguins. And then, of course, defensively, you had Brian Dumoulin, Chris Letang, P.O. Joseph, Marcus Pedersen, Jeff Petrie, Jan Ruda. I mean, there were a lot of players out there that should have done better. And then, of course, Tristan Jari, Casey DeSmith were the two goaltenders. Jari started the game, gave up four goals on 14 shots, and then DeSmith turn around, turns around and gives up two goals on seven shots. So it was the same save percentage, which was horrendous for both goaltenders. And, of course, Detroit had their fair share of starters in the lineup as well. You have guys like Tyler Bertuzzi, Andrew Kopp. Even if you look further down the list, you have Dominic Kubalik. I mean, Dylan Larkin as well. He is a phenomenal player for Detroit. David Perron, the ex-Penguin. Oscar Sundquist, an ex-Penguin. Jacob Verana. Detroit had talent in that lineup as well. But the Penguins should not have played as poorly as they did. So they have three preseason games left to really turn things around before the regular season kicks off. They play tomorrow at 1 in Buffalo. That's the next preseason matchup for the Penguins. Then Monday, October 3rd, they're in Detroit for game five of six in the preseason. And then the final tune-up for the Penguins is at home on October 7th, a week from today. So this time next week, when I'm on the air, we will have a very clear idea of how the Penguins roster is shaping up. If there are any 
battles that still need to be sorted out, what they are, and the opportunities in which they will both have to go out there and compete in that final preseason game at home against Buffalo. And then we're into the regular season, and hockey is back officially, not just in terms of preseason and training camp, but games that actually mean something. Of course, it's always better when hockey's around. And the Penguins are still looking to prove that they are a cup contender. Whether or not that ends up being the case, only time will tell. Now, one of the lines that has really looked great for the Penguins, and this is mainly in the Red Wings game, but also in practice, was Jake Gensel, Sidney Crosby, Ricard Raquel. This is a line that the Penguins saw a lot of success with last season, and it's one that they quite honestly should stick with. I understand that Brian Rust plays well with Crosby and Gensel. I understand Ricard Raquel was probably brought in more so to play with Evgeny Malkin and give him an elite winger. But that line of Gensel, Crosby, Raquel, you can't break them up. And then you slot Brian Rust down on the second line with Evgeny Malkin, give him a guy who he is very much familiar with in terms of chemistry, and then on his left wing, you can bounce back and forth between either Danton Heinen or Jason Zucker, depending upon who's the hotter hand. And that, in my opinion, is how the Penguins' lines should be sorted out. That's something that they seriously need to consider doing throughout much of the season. But again, Mike Sullivan is very stubborn, and I would not be surprised if come opening night, the first line is Gensel, Crosby, and Rust, because... Sullivan is set in his ways. And in that same regard, he's very set on the fact that Brian Dumoulin needs to be paired with Chris Letang. I get that Dumoulin is very much more of a defensive defenseman. Letang is more of an offensive defenseman. Yes, I know that's a bit of a paradox, but Letang is the one who gets involved in scoring. Brian Dumoulin compliments Letang in that way because Dumoulin doesn't necessarily get as involved in the offense as somebody like Chris Letang does. But those two are just simply not playing well together anymore. It worked in the past. It's time to move on. And that's something that Mike Sullivan needs to look into these final three preseason games as well is getting Chris Letang to be more comfortable with somebody else other than Brian Dumoulin and finding a way for Dumoulin to then be paired with somebody who he is more comfortable playing with and see if they can find a spark elsewhere. If you try something new in preseason, if it doesn't work, then you go back to what you have, unfortunately, with Dumoulin and Latang. But right now, it's not sitting the way that it needs to, and it needs to be changed because Latang and Dumoulin are struggling. They have struggled for quite some time, and it needs to get better. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio when we return discussing the Pittsburgh Pirates as they continue to make roster moves and also taking a look at where the organization goes from here, right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show.
We're back here on this Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest now with the Pittsburgh Pirates. As I mentioned before the break, roster moves continue to be made for the Pittsburgh baseball team as they have had two players designated for assignment since last week. Two names that are quite big, and yes, I know that may seem a bit ironic coming from the perspective of the Pirates, seeing as they typically don't have a lot of big-name players, but it was Greg Allen and Michael Chavis who were designated for assignment as the Pirates decided to select the contract of Jose Godoy from AAA Indianapolis and also claiming Miguel Anduar off of waivers from the New York Yankees. Now, Godoy has been with the team for quite some time, has had some experience at the Major League level, hasn't necessarily shown anything in that regard. So the only thing I can really see out of this is Ben Sherrington, Derek Shelton, just want to give Godoy one last opportunity maybe to show some sort of life. However, Miguel Andujar is a player that once had a lot of potential. In 2018, leading up to when Garrett Cole was traded to the Houston Astros, the Pirates wanted to trade Garrett Cole to the Yankees. Neil Huntington wanted Miguel Andujar to be the centerpiece of a trade for Garrett Cole. And the Yankees said no because Andujar had a lot of potential. He was showing a lot of promise. He came into the league and really took things by storm and then really kind of fell off these past few years. And then it was right up at the end of this season that the Yankees decided to finally cut ties and move on from him. When you look at his numbers in 2018, I mean, this is a guy who hit just shy of 300, had 27 home runs, 92 RBIs. And that was all in the span of 573 at-bats. Of course, when you look at his numbers over the next few seasons, specifically 2019-2020, he hasn't even reached that at-bat tally, even reached a fraction of what it was in 2018. I mean, between 2019 and 2020, he had 109 at-bats compared to 573 in 2018. 154 at-bats in 2021, and then 107 so far in 2022, split between the Yankees and the Pirates. 96 at-bats in New York, 11 in Pittsburgh. And he wasn't necessarily hitting the best for the Yankees. He was only hitting 229, but that's still a significant upgrade compared to what the Pirates had. And he has taken the Pirates by storm since he's came over hitting 364 in just those 11 at-bats. Again, I know it's a very small sample size with four hits and a pair of doubles included in those four hits. But it's something now 
that you can work with. I'm not totally convinced yet that Andujar is someone who is going to really bounce back. I'm not saying he's going to be a long-term piece for the Pirates. I'm saying get from him what you can, and if he doesn't pan out, then you deal with it later. I very much could see Miguel Andujar being the next version of Yoshi Satsugo for the Pirates, where he comes over after being DFA'd, starts off extremely well, and once that initial new toy atmosphere rules off, wears off, if you will, then he just cannot perform. And again, I very much hope I'm wrong in saying that Andujar is going to be the next Yoshi Satsugo. If he continues to hit like this and consistently finds his way on base, stays a major part of the Pirates lineup, I will fully admit that I was wrong about Andujar. But I just have this gut feeling he's going to turn into the next Yoshi Tsutsugo as far as his career trajectory with the team. And then the question becomes, where are you going to play him? You're not going to play him at third because of key Brian Hayes. I know he's been dealing with some injury issues, but when Hayes is healthy, he's playing there. And Andujar is even probably a little bit, I don't want to say not athletic enough, but he's not necessarily built for third base anymore. Maybe at one time, but he's now moved more so into being a corner outfielder or simply just a DH. Now, of course, first base could certainly be an option if that's something the Pirates consider they want to do moving forward, where they could train him at first base in spring training next year and have him be the starting first baseman in 2023. But I would also like to see the Pirates really have a consistent DH. And if Andujar is the guy, then that's fine. Keep him as the DH and go out and bring in a new first baseman. Because, like I said, Chavis was DFA'd outright at the AAA Indianapolis. Greg Allen, very much the same. And there was a lot of backlash for the Pirates organization for getting rid of Michael Chavis. Not necessarily Greg Allen. It was all about Michael Chavis. Because... He was a name the fans knew. He was somebody that would be a clubhouse leader. I mean, I get all of that's important. You know, you want players that the fans know. You want guys who are going to be leaders within the clubhouse. But for crying out loud, the dude could not hit. If you want to say, keep Chavis until the end of the season and then DFA him, I would want I would 100% agree with that. I think honestly that's probably what the Pirates should have done because it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to DFA Michael Chavis with 9 games left in the season. But I'm also not Ben Charrington. So again, I think it's something that the fans are just finding something to complain about either way. If Michael Chavis would have been kept on the roster until the end of the season, fans would have complained because he wasn't producing, especially if he continued to get at-bats. If the Pirates DFA'd Chavis like they did, they were going to complain because he was a clubhouse guy and he was somebody the fans knew and yada, yada, yada. At this point, 
And I know some of you are going to say that they set this up themselves, but at this point, the pirates are damned if they do and damned if they don't. That's There's no other way to put it. When you look at Michael Chavis and his stats, in his last seven games, in which he had 22 at-bats, Michael Chavis was 1 for 22. That's an average of 0.45. When you look at his last 15 games, in which he had 48 at-bats, he was 8 for 48, an average of 167. In his last 30 games, 103 at-bats, 19 for 103, translating to an average of 184. The guy simply wasn't getting on base. He wasn't even putting the ball in play. If he was, it wasn't allowing him to get on base. And that's somebody you want to keep because he's a name that fans know or he's a leader in the clubhouse. And when I say keep, I'm not just talking about keeping for the final nine games of the season because if that were the case, if that was what was being argued, then I would understand that. But this is a guy that some people wanted to be kept for next season. I mean, it was already a scenario where the Pirates were finding internal alternatives to play first base. That's why Ben Gamble took some time at first base. That's why we've seen so many other players at first base because Chavis wasn't getting it done. And at this point, even when he was still a part of the organization, Chavis was really just a platoon player, meaning he only played when the Pirates were facing a left-handed starting pitcher because Chavis hit left-handed pitching better than right-handed pitching. I mean, he couldn't hit right-handed pitching really to save his life, but the left-handed pitching was much more in his strong suit, and that was really the only time in which he started games and got things going for the Pirates in terms of offense. But even towards the end of the season, that wasn't necessarily the case. Now, maybe Derek Shelton threw him in more to get him more at-bats, because he was being told by Ben Charrington that it was somebody they might move on from. And then if that were the case, he would be facing a lot more right-handed pitching. But I'll tell you what, if you can't hit a right-handed pitcher, you're not going to make it in Major League Baseball. There's no ands, ifs, or buts about it. It's just not going to happen. So then now the question becomes, where the organization goes from here? Well, first of all, there are several major areas in which this team needs to improve. Going into next season, you have to find a clear-cut first baseman, somebody that you know is going to hold that position down firmly. Whether it's going out and trying to bring back Josh Bell because he's set to be a free agent or somebody else, it's got to be done. You have to go out and establish a number one catcher, whether it's bringing back Roberto Perez, who was hurt for most of this season, or going out and bringing in somebody externally, one of those two options has to be done. I know the Pirates pitching staff loves Roberto Perez. They love what he did for them in spring training and even the early part of the regular season before he got hurt. So I'm certainly not opposed to bringing back Roberto Perez, but I would also like to see the Pirates complement Roberto Perez with a catcher that is a little bit more offensive-minded because Roberto Perez is all about the pitch framing, all about the defensive aspects of catching. And if he's only going to go out there 
and hit 210, 215 because of the fact that he's so focused on defense and helping to receive pitches from each of the Pirates starters and relievers, then Pittsburgh needs a backup catcher who is going to be much more offensive-minded and can go out there and make plays with the bat. I'm not saying bring in somebody like the equivalent of Gary Sanchez, who can only hit and can't defend to save his life. That's not what I'm referencing. All I'm saying is go out there and find somebody that can be very solid defensively, but also has a little bit more pop in the bat behind Roberto Perez. Then, aside from that, I mean, you have Rodolfo Castro, who can play second base, O'Neill Cruz at short. I honestly think that that's a very solid middle infield duo. I know Castro has had his issues at times, especially when it comes to discipline. But Castro is just continuing to hit, and I don't see any reason why you need to change that up. If you want to go out and sign a veteran middle infielder to take reps from them, I shouldn't say take reps from them, get reps on those guys off days, then that's fine. You can do that. Whether it's keeping Kevin Newman, if that's the route you want to go, or bringing in somebody externally. But then the outfield is going to need some work as well. Of course, Brian Reynolds has center field anchored down. Jack Sawinski has shown some pop, but he's also shown a lot of inconsistencies. Ben Gamble has been steady for the Pirates in the outfield, but you don't necessarily know if he's going to come back if he's somebody that even wants to come back. So there's a lot of concerns with the outfield. And then, of course, the pitching staff is a mess of its own. The Pirates are going to need several relievers and a few starters. So it's going to be a busy offseason, or it should be a busy offseason for Ben Charrington. And you've really got to work to turn this team around because they have to go 4-2 and over their final six games against St. Louis to avoid a 100 loss season. And this season has been a complete failure from the Pirates in terms of trying to improve on last season. They are just as bad, if not worse, than they were a year ago. And it's not a steady direction in which the Pirates need to be going because this is a team that is built around the idea of continuing to rebuild continuing to make themselves better day by day, month by month, and season by season. And if you're not going to show that in terms of year-to-year results, then what the hell are we doing? I mean, you have to find a way to improve. You have to find a way to get better, bring in better players, promote from within, whether it's prospects or guys that maybe you signed to a minor league deal, maybe don't necessarily make the team right out of spring training, but continue to hit at the AAA level, and then you give them that opportunity maybe a few weeks into the season. But something has to change for the Pirates going into next season. I understand there's a lot of issues with Derek Shelton in terms of the decisions he makes as a manager. I fully understand that. I get that he's not perfect. He's far from it. But he's also being dealt a very terrible deck of cards. And while mistakes he is making are costly, when you look at it from a bigger picture, it's those above him that are causing this mess to be made. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we return, one final segment discussing 
pit football as conference play begins tomorrow for the Panthers and looking at the chances of the Panthers being able to create a dynasty in the ACC right here on the Bethany Online Radio. back here on the three rivers talk show one final segment as i mentioned before the break looking at panthers football and conference play starting this weekend for Pitt, taking on georgia tech now just to provide a little bit of perspective in this contest it was a game that has really turned into an unofficial rivalry between the teams of course this goes back to the COVID season in 2020 in which it was a nail-biter game the Panthers came out on top and at the time Jeff Collins the Georgia Tech coach refused I don't want to say refused but he would not let go of Pat Narduzzi's hand when they shook hands on the field after the game and Pat Narduzzi took exception to it. You know, I understand Collins may have been frustrated with how the game went. Maybe may have been frustrated with some of Pat Narduzzi's end game decisions, but Jeff Collins now is not in charge of Georgia tech anymore. So 
in a way, karma bit Jeff Collins in the rear end because guess what? Pat Narduzzi still has a job. Jeff Collins doesn't. And so, you know, yeah, Jeff Collins may have gotten his 10 seconds of fame because he decided to not let go of Narduzzi's hand. But look where that got him, unemployed. So, in a way, this is going to be a big game for the Panthers in which they have a strong chance to go out there and win. Pitts still ranked 3-1, and one, 24th in the country. Georgia Tech unranked at 1-3. and three. This is a game taking place in prime time, 8 o'clock tomorrow night. A chance for the Panthers to make a statement in terms of defending their title in the ACC. The Panthers have the opportunity to win the ACC again this year. Yes, their team was talented last year, but they are very much capable of going right back out there and winning the conference once again, especially given the fact that Keaton Slovis is a very talented quarterback. They have a phenomenal running back duo in Vincent Davis and Izzy Abanacanda, along with several talented receivers, including Slovis's number one guy, Jared Wayne. This is a game that Pitt should be very successful in. Now, given that that's the case, it'll end up turning into a game in which Pitt squeaks away with a three or a seven-point victory in the final seconds because that's just who Pitt is and what they do. I mean, a win's a win. Pat Narduzzi's not going to care. But it also doesn't necessarily look good for Pitt because this is a team Pitt is. Even with the current organization of the college football playoffs of only being four teams, this is a Panthers team that some people, and by people I'm referring to college football experts, who think that Pitt has an outside chance to sneak into the college football playoffs. Of course, they'd end up going up against a team like either Alabama or Ohio State and probably get destroyed in the process, but it would still be a phenomenal achievement for Pitt if they can say they made the, made the college football playoffs before it expands to 12 teams because it's four right now, and it will be for a few more seasons. I believe it's 2026 when they plan to expand it to 12 teams. But in order for the Panthers to get to that point, the defense really has to clean it up. And when I mean clean it up, I mean get away, find a way to get off the field sooner, find a way to limit the amount of points that the opposing offenses are scoring. You look at the first four games this season for Pitt. They gave up 31 at home to West Virginia in the backyard brawl. The offense put up 38, came out on top. Well, Pitt's offense put up 31, I should say, because the game was ultimately sealed on a pick six from Pitt's defense. The Tennessee game, Pitt lost 34-27. The offense puts up 27, not enough, because Malik Hooker, or Hendon Hooker, I believe, gave Tennessee a 
phenomenal game. Yes, Hendon Hooker, Malik Hooker, completely unrelated already in the NFL. But Hendon Hooker, the former Virginia Tech kid, haunting the Panthers once again, not even in the ACC anymore. You look at Western Michigan, Pitt won 34-13. That was the only solid display for the Panthers defensively, and it was against a team like Western Michigan who shouldn't have even had a chance in that game. And then you look at last week's game against Rhode Island, Pitt's offense put up 45, but they still should not be conceding 24 points to Rhode Island. I mean, I get if Keaton Slovis can go out there and lead Pitt's offense to 27 to 33 points a game, that it's going to give Pitt a strong chance to win more games than not. But this is a team that is going to need to rely on their defense, especially getting into conference play. You have a lot of tough opponents in conference play. I mean, next week, you have Virginia Tech at home. That's going to be a huge game. After that, you go on the road to play Louisville. Then you're on the road again, taking on UNC in Chapel Hill. That's the end of October. Beginning of November, you're hosting at currently now undefeated Syracuse. Whether they remain undefeated at that point, who knows? But it's still a credit to Syracuse at this point for being 4-0. So it's going to be a tough stretch for the Panthers in conference play. And as talented as Keaton Slovis is, as talented as Jared Wayne is, Izzy Abanacanda, Vincent Davis, and the rest of the Panthers' offense, the defense needs to step up. You don't have the luxury of having the Aaron Donald on your Panthers team anymore or the Paris Ford that you once did that really anchored that defense. You're going to have to find ways to be more creative. You're going to have to find ways to limit opponents and you may be in a situation if you're Pat Narduzzi where you come out of a game with a scoreline of 16-13, you know, 20 to 17, something along those lines and you may come out on the losing end because your defense isn't going to be able to get enough stops and the opposing defense is going to shut down your offense entirely because that has happened to teams like this where it's predominantly offensive-minded. I mean, I see a lot of similarities right now between this current Panthers team and the 2017 Pittsburgh Steelers, in which it was very much offensive-dominated. Defenses struggled to get a stop and just could not find a way to help the team be successful. It cost the Steelers in the divisional round of the playoffs against Jacksonville. They lost to the Jags twice, Blake Bortles once in the regular season, once in the playoffs, and Blake Bortles came into Heinz Field at the time Heinz Field, now Akershire Stadium, and put up 45 on the Pittsburgh Steelers defense, and Jacksonville won that game 45-42. And I could very well see it being a situation for the Panthers where there is a game that either causes them to miss out on the ACC championship in which they lose by a very similar scoreline or 
in the ACC championship, they lose by a very similar scoreline, and it ultimately ends up causing them to either, like I said, miss out on the ACC championship game entirely, and at that point, if you miss out on the championship game, there's no way in hell you're making the college football playoffs. Or if you do make the ACC championship and lose a game like that, you're going to be one of the first four out of the college football playoffs. And so you have to find a way to fix that defense, turn things around sooner rather than later, and get them going in a way that is going to be a force to be reckoned with in the ACC. Because like I said, Pitt has had successful defenses in the past, and it has helped them win games. The defense right now is not helping Pitt win games. It's not helping them be successful. The only game it was even a factor remotely was the game against Western Michigan when Pitt's defense held them to 13 points. And to be quite frank, I don't even think necessarily Western Michigan should have put up 13 against Pitt, but it was by far the Panthers' best defensive effort of the season. You can't give up 24 to Rhode Island. You can't give up 31 to JT Daniels in West Virginia. You can't give up 34 to Hendon Hooker in Tennessee. I understand Tennessee is a solid team. They are a powerhouse of the SEC, arguably the best conference in college football. But that's still the point being is that the defense is struggling. Now, if let's just say Pitt gave up 19 to West Virginia, 6 to Western Michigan, and then 13 to Rhode Island. And then you have the 34-point outlier that they lose to Tennessee. If that were the case, then I would simply chalk it up to the fact of, okay, Tennessee is a powerhouse of the SEC, and they gave Pitt a run for their money. Tennessee came out on top. But that's not the case. The outlier for the Panthers so far in terms of points conceded was the Western Michigan game. That's the only game this season they've given up less than 20 points. And I'll be generous with that. You know, because that's the game that Pitt's defense really came to play. The others, they have not shown out. And I'm including the West Virginia game in that, even though that game was sealed for the Panthers, courtesy of a pick six. Because, yes, that play ultimately won the game for Pitt, but Pitt's defense still should not have conceded 31 points to JT Daniels and West Virginia. That absolutely should not have happened because while West Virginia's offense is talented, they are not talented enough to score 31 on the Panthers. And I'll leave it at that. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Appreciate you being here with us for this two-hour show here this afternoon. Be sure to tune in next Friday at 2 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, Pittsburgh Pirates, and more. Drew Von Sayo signing off. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, everybody. For those here at Bethany, be safe and enjoy homecoming weekend right here on the Bethany Online Radio.